Okay. Uh, we are chapter 36, lesson 36. And uh, we're not speeding through this very fast, but uh, we're in question five. And, and really kind of what we've been talking about uh, is some of the aspects of the scriptures. And do the scriptures contain the word of God plus other matters also? And we decided, yeah, it gives us uh, uh, some other things. Uh, we discovered, we talked last week that scripture can't be broken. You can't say, well, throw a piece of it out or a piece of it in or add something to it. That it's uh, complete and accurate in the way that it was uh, put together by the Holy Spirit. And now we got, we got talking at the end of last week, why are the most obscure incidentals of the Word of God so important? And we said that... Um, Right out said how all this accords with our theme, the literal interpretation by the Holy Spirit he presented overall. Uh, those might be called incidentals and in no way necessary for the general accuracy of Scripture, but you'll find that there are no such things as incidentals in God's Word. I like that because there really isn't. There aren't any incidentals. Something that I, I call them fillers. You know, if you read a lot of authors, especially Christian authors, you know, what they have to say, they can say in 20 pages, but they've got to fill up 140. So a hundred of, of what they write are filler. And uh, the scripture doesn't have fillers. It's, it's precise. So... Today, the first question we're going to talk about is number five. says, can Scripture be accurate if it relates to lies that have been told? It's a pretty, good, it's a pretty interesting uh, question that Rideout asked because uh, if, you, if you go to Genesis, uh, right away you see Lucifer lying to Eve. So the question is, is Scripture accurate there? Answer, sure it is. Just because you're sinning doesn't mean, you know, we're, Scripture isn't developed by God to only show the good parts. One of the great things about it is that in the, uh, he shows the foibles and the weaknesses of all those disciples in the Gospels and through all of these uh, patriarchs in the Old Testament, you know, when they sin, they sin. When they lied, they lied. When they were deceptive, when they were devious, all of that shows up. Right out says, but it, but it may be objected that there is in Scripture very much that is not true. And how can you, and how can that be inspired? That's what triggered my question. Undoubtedly, we have, for instance, the falsehood of Satan. Okay. So, uh, his temptation of the, uh, of the Lord, his temptation of Eve, uh, his, his misquoting scripture. Didn't he misquote scripture? Didn't he misquote things to, to, to uh, Eve? Didn't he misquote things to the, to the Lord Jesus? Sure he does. He does it all the time. He's a deceiver. But it's there. So. But then, says the objector, what becomes of your theory of verbal inspiration? 
Do you see a problem there or is this a made-up problem? The mistake is in confounding infallible inspiration with the contents of what is revealed. To illustrate, a man might be a perfectly accurate reporter able to take down every word of an address. It'd be a great mistake to confound his report of the address with the contents of the address. You understand what he means there? If, uh, you know, if I'm right, or somebody gives me a copy of the teleprompter <laughs> for Joe Biden's speech, am I going to take it down accurately? I've already got it. It's accurate. So can I misconstrue what he said with the infallibility of my, of my recording it? There's a difference. Okay. You know, Mike, that just reminded me of a thought, you know, Anytime I've read a newspaper article about something that I was involved in or intimately aware of, I catch errors and mistakes all throughout the article. It's like, well, that's not what happened. That's not what he said and so sure. on and so forth. It's like full of it. And then, I, and then I turn around and read all the other articles in newspapers if they're exactly accurate. But, you know, God's Word doesn't have any of that, right? It doesn't have those, those little, little errors in detail. Yeah. I was interviewed one time for an article, and the, the the guy that was interviewing me, the writer of the article, he kept at over, re, uh, re-asking the same question over and over again because he was trying to get the answer he wanted. And I didn't give him the answer he wanted, but when the article showed up, it looked like I gave him the answer he wanted. That's <laughs> so, so, weird. So, Okay, so... Uh, the, the point being that the reports of, of, of th- events in the scripture don't have anything to do with whether it's inspired or not. You know, if the accuracy of what happened and what was said, and even if the information is misconstrued, it's like all of the, uh, what Paul calls super apostles in Second Corinthians, what did they have to say? Well, they were deceptive in everything they were doing. Does it make scripture in error or errant have errors in it if if somebody like that is preaching a false gospel? No, it doesn't. It shows that the false gospel in and of itself did ha- happen. It was preached. People fell for it and and uh, followed it, you know. We have a tendency sometimes to Look at scriptures from a mercy standpoint that everything's going to work out in the end. It's Hollywood. Not. It's not. So, okay. Uh, so that, that leads to the next question, which is probably a more uh, profound question. Did God protect his word when it was hand copied? So historically, well, you know, there there wasn't scan, scanning machines and computers. So God's word was hand-copied for centuries, mostly by monks, whether they were believers or not. Did God protect the veracity of his word through all of those copies? Yes. No mistakes. No opinion. If you're like me, I read a lot of uh, 
1850 to 1900 English because I like brethren writers. Well, their meaning for a lot of words is different than like our meaning today. And so sometimes uh, it's a good thing that that uh, word search has this synonym thing in it because <laughs> I can look and say, oh, that's what that word means. That's what he means. I, I would have thought it was something else. So there are incidences in uh, in Scripture where it looks like a copy made and at this point has been modified by someone later at a later time because of language, because of translations into different languages. Uh, like what was the original? The original uh, word of God was written in Greek, right? But as the Catholics took control of scripture translation, a lot of it got translated into Latin. And so, and they did Latin, they did Latin because they thought Latin was a dead language and it wouldn't change over time. Or like our English changes constantly because it's a live language. We use it all the time. Well, Latin stopped being used. And so they thought, well, at least the Catholics thought that if they got everything translated into Latin, it would mean the same thing because it wasn't going to change through usage. See that? So, so what do you think? Is God, God's word, uh, did he protect it by these guys that painstakingly wrote these beautiful characters and letters? They were so careful because when they had the guidance of the Holy Spirit, God wasn't interested in being incorrect. Mm-hmm. He was the governing agent in seeing what it was. And these were people who were very diligent about being careful. Mm-hmm. And it made a mistake to go back and Do you think that uh, transcribers were all believers? I think yeah. very, no. I think very few of them were. But they were diligent about those. They were. And by the they didn't know it, but they were. Sure. The supervision of the Holy Spirit. Sure. Okay? Sure. That's really important. And you mentioned governing agent and also supervision. And I think that yeah, somebody copied me. Um, you have different personalities, you have different people all throughout history that were involved in um, copying, scribing the Word of God. But without that governing agent of the Holy Spirit, whether they're believers or not, his person had to be through the Holy Spirit is preserving his Word. Yeah. And when we go back and we look like Thomas, there's words and little nuances, I would call them nuances, but they don't change the doctrinal content of any of the, of the scripture itself. 
And that's a that's a divine thing. Yeah, I think so too. I think so too. I don't no think other kind of literature that falls underneath that supervision. And what I'm looking for is something I was looking at this week. Um, out of John, I think it's twelve. It might have been eleven, where the Jews wanted to, you know, because he raised Lazarus from the dead. That was the last straw. We got to get rid of him. And Annas, who was the high priest, said, "Isn't it better that one man die for the whole, for for all of Israel, than have all of Israel be smushed down by the Romans?" Prophetic by a guy who <laughs> had no idea. I mean, a, a Jewish rabbi, maybe the high priest, and I think he was, makes this prophetic statement, you know, without any understanding what he's really saying, you know. So. Well, I think this is this is actually a big deal today. It's it's always been a big deal. It is right. You're gonna have hope in something. You need to be confident that it's accurate, that it is what God said. And one of the first things that believers do under stress and unbelievers do by nature is suppress the authenticity of God's word. Mm-hmm. Did God really say? Mm-hmm. I don't think so. Because mm-hmm. I know better than it. Yeah. Um, that happened in the garden and that continues to happen today. But this is a fundamental question for people that are coming to terms with God's word is is this what God said mm-hmm. or is this just what Paul said right or yeah. Mark or Luke or John or whomever mm-hmm. they all have they all have a perspective of the same events why are they different these are it, it seems like this is, should be a you know literary class and it's not yeah. important to our spirituality Right, but it absolutely is because if you don't trust that the word of God has been preserved and governed by the Holy Spirit to say exactly what He intended to say to you, yeah, in His love letter, yeah, then you don't trust. Well, you don't have a basis. You don't have. Yeah, you, you go to another authority. Yes, you do. You do. You do the great swap, right? Like God said, but I think this is a better authority, and I'm going yeah. to choose whatever. Or I think I think this is what he meant. Yeah, I think this is what he really meant. Yeah, I, yeah. My uh, anecdotal experience about that was I was a Christian about two and a half weeks in December, coming out of a Catholic background. Not that I'd ever been in a Catholic church in the previous fifteen years, but I thought, oh well, I'm a Christian now. I better go to Mass on Sunday or on Christmas Day. So I did, and uh, they re- they read the gospel account of the of the birth of Christ, and for the first time in my life, I really heard what it was saying, and it, I I could hardly contain myself and how wonderful it was, and then some priest got up and talked for twenty minutes. And he had not a clue. I got up and walked out of the church because all this time I realized all this time. I, I never saw. I never, you know, and I think that's true with, with, uh, especially young believers or those that the Lord is leading to, to, it puts a, it puts a burden on us to be careful with what we say. And what I've found over the years is that my opinion and your opinion doesn't count. The words have the power. 
And if you get to the words and can stay with the words, they'll do the work. They will do the work. And he tells us that in several places, you know. Where the rubber meets the, the road, so to speak, with this is, for us, is, did God really say this? And we talk about how that applies to our identification a lot. Mm-hmm. But call it back to Genesis. Did God make me in his image? Do I actually have a purpose? Does God have a plan for me? Does he care about me? These are all things that you have to take God at his word. Yeah. I trust that that original language, that manuscript, and all the comparisons of all the scrolls that we're going to continue to find, and how they match up. But where mm-hmm. me too is that one decision of, did God really say this, and is this true? And that's where, and that's where interpretation and the method of interpretation that you use can really take you off the rails. I've seen so many I think you're right about that. I think that's the danger. They're well-intended. They're academic. They're scholarly. They love the Lord, but they adopt. Did God really say, or do I need to add my system to this thing? Because there's a really good system going on over here where it would just make everything seem to make sense in a blink of an eye. Just put it in a, you know, an accuracy or you know, a seven-point system, five-point system. Whatever yeah. the, the yeah. point is, is you have to decide, it, am I adding to this, or do you kind of just say, and had I be in a better place by believing what he said versus right. trying to reinterpret it to make it fit my system? And that's what people are doing with. Let me ask a question right there, because it's critical. There are two basic forms with adjustments that are in play today. There's a reform viewpoint of God's Word, and then there's a dispensational viewpoint. Or put it another way, there's the law view or the grace view. Okay? So uh, people that grow up in a law-based church and they're instructed that way and then they get to be adults and uh, I don't know if they ever question what they, but they disregard. They think grace is scary. Or the rare bird that grows up in a grace environment um, rejects the law viewpoint, but both groups preach salvation by grace. They both do. But living the Christian life, you either live, live it by law, adherence to as much or as little of the law as you've been taught, or you learn how grace functions and you operate that way. That, uh, that to me, is, is, is the, the biggest problem in Christianity, law and grace. Grace isn't taught very much. It certainly isn't understood uh, very much uh, in terms of you can define it. You can put a nice uh, definition on what grace is. But then you try to, in the scriptures, I think it's difficult to read the scriptures when you get to imperative verses that say, you know, like Romans 12, I beseech you by the mercies of God, present your body a living sacrifice. I'm supposed to do that. Oh, 
Where's that legal? That's right. Confess your sins. Um, you know, all the things that are what Vern used to love to call logical imperatives. You know, that under grace, uh, Paul writes and he lays out a, a position that we have based on grace. And then, then he says, based on all of that, here's what that life looks like. And this is what it should, this is how it should function. Well, that same premise was true when God gave the law to Moses. He said, you're my people, special set-aside people. And based on everything I've done for you, let let me me give you the the rules on how this life works. Not rules in the sense of uh, you've got to try as hard, but how does a righteous man under the law live? And And you need to do these things. Well, of course, what did man do with sin in his head? He, he went from back here to obey the law, to be righteous, where God was saying, no, you start with righteousness and work that way. See? So, I think, I think that when you're talking about the two systems, right, law and grace, represented by the reform thinking versus the dispensational thinking, a lot of times folks, I think, they either grab onto one or the other and they become, they become a Darby. Darby is 100%. Right? Everything here. Darby, yeah. You know, I'm, I'm a part of it. I'm everything here. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I, I see practically happening in my own life and just in my day is salvation is by faith, through grace. And right after that moment, I gotta get busy. And so what I do is I take grace and I apply it to my salvation, but I don't take the same exact grace and understand it through my spiritual growth. I have to get busy now. And the church does a really good job of telling me how to do that. Sure. I don't have an opportunity to learn yeah. what it means to be a believer on the grace because that's salvation. That's done. That happened when I was baptized and it was wonderful and what you know, maybe it was a big event and maybe it wasn't. But at any rate, Paul talks about from faith to faith, right? So faith works the same way after salvation, and it still exists in a, in a reality of grace. Mm-hmm. That's unheard of. Mm-hmm. So now I've got to get busy. You've got to shackle me in the pew somehow. Yeah. So it puts, it puts a lot of emphasis on the gospel message being a grace message. That's where it stops, though, for most people. I agree. I agree. Because your life is a grace message too. Yeah, and that's the identification group. Sure, and but if you're if you're uh, if the gospel message you heard had law had mixed into it, then you know you have no clarity on that. Yeah, you really don't. And so, but our discussion over the last five minutes discounts the work of the Spirit in every individual believer. And I think he's very proactive in terms of wanting to teach and trying to teach every believer grace and how it works, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, it's, it's so opposed by the sin nature and, and all of the, um, the enemies of grace that you don't see it anywhere except in God's Word. That's where you see it, you know. And maybe you see it playing out in action and 
in a believer's life, but most of the time where you see it as God's word, you think, wow, God didn't have to do that, but he did it. It's kind of a cool place to be in the Word of God when you think to yourself, well, I wouldn't have done it that way. No, I wouldn't have. I wouldn't have done it that way. No. <laughs> that's just, that's a, actually a really, you can't think you want to grow because the moment you realize that you wouldn't have done it that way, that's why. That's why. <laughs> right? Yeah, I thought that, that same thought that if we took these ten people in the room and we're going to decide about how salvation is going to work, we're going to make up the plan. <laughs> There would be no grace in the plan. None. Because you have to be a sovereign God to be gracious. You have to be. You know? So, anyway. Um, so, in terms of uh, hand copies, I think, uh, and I know growing up at Catholicism, they made a big deal out of these guys that, sat in these monasteries and with, you know, a little feather pen and meticulously drew every one of those letters and the letters are huge and the Bibles are this thick. And, and what, what I think is cool about it now is that they're discovering, uh, who was it, uh, Courtney was talking about, he went to see Josh McDowell speak about and everything they're finding of antiquity that has to do with the Word of God verifies the Word of God today. And it's the graciousness of it. Well, that is not the head I believe. <laughs> <laughs> you can't concentrate for the phone buzzing. <laughs> I will say two things about grace. Uh, one is, uh, Lewis Barry Schaefer said, grace is the most hated thing in the world. And I think it is. There's no question about it because it eliminates you. You know, you don't get to say to God, I got this. Just tell me what to do and I'll do it. Grace doesn't work that way. He's going to do everything. you got to let him. And the other thing about grace is that all the credit goes somewhere else except to you. And that's hard because we all want a little credit, no matter what it is. You know, I hold the door open for you. I appreciate the fact that you said thank you. Makes me feel good, you know. That was my credit. So these these uh, transcribers of scripture, it would be inconsistent with God not to protect His word. It would be totally inconsistent with uh, with His character. Yet you look around and you think, well, why? Do, how did He allow all these false religions to you know sprout up and and really fool billions of people? And uh, the Lord Jesus announced that uh, that the Spirit of God convicts the world of sin, of righteousness. And you think, in observing, I don't see it. You see that? Like the nation of Islam, you think the Spirit of God is over there convincing them about who Christ is? says he is. No. As soon as, I, uh, as soon as I adopt that kind of a viewpoint, I begin to judge God. See that? Whenever I question him, I'm the judge. Rather than... Uh, rather than... Uh, um, 
he being sovereign and I'm being the one who receives. I've never thought about it until now, but are all these false religions attributed to Satan? Mm -hmm. Sure they are. Yeah. Sure they are. They're all part of his... He's the god of this world we're living in, and he does everything he can to discount God. Well, and, you know, it's pretty basic. They're, they're, they're really... You know, the great thing about understanding Satan, not that I suggest you study him, but he's in, in 7,000 years he hasn't changed his game plan. What Dr. Morris called the long war against God. That's right. And so he, every false religion has basically the same premise. You must die for, for your God. Christianity is the only one where God died for you. You know, you've got to perform... Otherwise, you know, you don't get the 70-year-old virgin. <laughs> However that goes. <laughs> you know, whatever, whatever, the, whatever, and it's true within the confines of uh, Christendom. Catholicism is totally law-based, based on everything that I must do. Otherwise, I am not going to make it. Reformed theology with, the, with their doctrine of perseverance of the saints, it's the same thing. I don't have security until I actually get across the finish line. Where the grace space, you should have the security right now, based on what he says in his word. And that has never changed. You know, no matter how much the um, opposition there is to, to the grace message, it's, it hasn't changed. It's kind of an interesting way of looking at that. I've never said it this way before, but from a works perspective, which is everything but the grace message, is what do I need? From a biblical perspective, it's what do I have? That's good. What's my possession? The rest of the rest of the works-based world religion, as you call it, my efforts to get to God, or what do I need? Sure. That's a scary place to be, because we all have needs. And Every single one of us. Sure, we do. Maybe we just need a little bit more and a little bit more in order yeah. to cross that finish line. Maybe I need a little bit more. Yeah. You spend the rest of your life thinking about what you need as opposed to what I have in Christ already. Yeah. It's a, it's a different perspective. You know, it's a, that Second Corinthians thorn in the flesh verses say exactly that. That Paul goes to the third heaven. He finds out what he has. Mm -hmm. He comes back and God gives him a thorn in the flesh so that he wouldn't think of himself any higher than he should. And he goes to God twice because he has a need. But God's grace overwhelms him so much that his need became secondary to the manifestation of God's grace. That's the cool thing. you know. And we don't think He's grace is... Tell us, you have me. Yeah. yeah. I need you to do anything. I need you to spend time knowing what you have in me. Yeah. And that's all you really. We're praying for those kids that you mentioned. That's what they need. They need to know that this Savior is not an icon and not a guy in a corner. He's a he's real. He's God, and he loves you, and he gave his life for you, and he wants you to know him. And he fulfills. He's a fulfillment of every desire you ever had. You know, hard message to get across. Okay, uh, 
I got a, I got one minute. We're going to get through this last question. According to the author, what is higher criticism? Higher criticism, he says, is the the purpose of higher criticism is to judge the text by its context, contents, and to accept or reject it according to certain standards adopted by critics. The way it looks is you go to college, they deconstruct the Bible according to their own standards. That's right. They reinterpret it, and then they tell you what to believe. Right. That's hard. That's exactly right. And uh, who is it? Is it somebody in here said that the problem with seminaries is that, you know, they, they go school two, three, four years, and they like to sit around and debate, so they artificially come up with the other side of the argument, and then they sit around and argue. Kind of like the Jewish people doing the synagogue and the synagogue. That's right. <laughs> Never comes to yeah. real life. So. I know, I know. And you don't come to a conclusion. That's part of our criticism. Well, that's the whole point. Yeah. You don't come to a conclusion. And then you have some fool in the background say, well, you're entitled to your belief and I'm entitled to mine. No, we're not. That's right. Yeah. So, and it really does get to the point of, can you trust God's word? Well, so, so yeah. what's uh, salvation really is trusting what the Father says about the Son, isn't it? The Christian life is really based on trusting what God's Word says about the Lord Jesus Christ. That's really what it is. So I, I either believe the person who, who said it, or I don't. And if, I, if I'm focusing somewhere other than the person, I'm going to get fooled. If I'm into, If I'm into the... Not that the words aren't important, they're extremely important, but the words are designed to reveal a person to me, and that's where the trust is. It's in him. See? My, I laugh all the time. I, I, I've got a brother who has. Sometimes he's funny, sometimes he isn't. But he loves to say, have I lied to you lately? And I always think about the word of God. Has it lied to me lately? No, it never has. It never has. My brother has. <laughs> anyway, let's close. Father, how we thank you for your grace. We desire to grow in the knowledge and grace of the Lord Jesus, him personally, so that we would be able to rest and trust him for every circumstance that comes our way. And we thank you for him, and we pray in his precious name. Amen.